0: This week on New Mexico in Focus, it will soon be time for the state to redraw its political boundaries. Can we do better? What
1: happens when
0: we don't have the freest, fairest,
1: most inclusive, most competitive of elections?
0: Plus, our land looks at what native voices can bring to critical conversations about water in the West. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. That conversation about redistricting is part of our ongoing Your New Mexico Government project, a partnership with KUNM Radio and the Santa Fe Reporter. It's a fascinating look at what's at stake locally from the census and the people who are trying to ensure good government follows closely behind the count. With Labor Day behind us, the Line Opinion Panel gets political this week as we talk voting, debates, and polls.
2: Hey, happy Friday, one and all. This is Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. And for New Mexico and Focus, today is Friday, September 11th, 2020. We thank you, as always, for listening to the podcast and we'd love to hear from you. You can get a hold of us in a lot of different ways. You can go to our uh, website at newmexicoinfocus.org We are on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, NM in focus is the handle there. That's how you find us. So drop us a note. Let us know what you think about anything on this week's show or about a topic or person we should be talking to on a future show. And as Gene pointed out, we've got a lot of election news to come this week. Uh, the old saying in politics usually goes that the election really starts after Labor Day. So here we are, less than a week after Labor Day and election season definitely heating up. We're going to have a lot more on it coming up in the future weeks including some debates and candidate forums, candidate conversations. So be on the lookout for that. But we will kick things off this week with our line opinion panel for the week joining us regulars Dan Foley, former state representative, and former state senator DD Feldman. We appreciate them being here as well and we welcome back Katherine McGill from the New Mexico Black Leadership Council. And we appreciate the time they take each and every week as we rotate through guests, but to do all of the research and thinking about these topics and being willing to be a part of these important conversations. Let's kick it off this week with one of those election topics. That is political polls. And we want to be careful here. We're not interested in horse race reporting, around the elections, but polls obviously give you some context and some background of a snapshot in time, and the Albuquerque Journal just released their first rounds of polls in the presidential race, the U.S. Senate race, and others, and we wanted to just uh, find out what information the line folks glean from those polls here in the initial weeks. So here now is host Gene Grant.
0: The Albuquerque Journal has once again enlisted Brian Sanderoff's research and polling company to survey important campaigns and issues ahead of the election. We don't see as much polling as we used to, and while we don't want to rely too much on them as a predictive tool, they give us a good idea of what's happening at a given moment and how strategies have been working throughout campaigns. Joining me in the studio through the magic of the internet is a welcome guest we're always glad to have, Catherine McGill. She's the founder and director of the New Mexico Black Leadership Council. Also joining me on screen is former House Rep and Line regular Dan Foley. And to complete our panel, we've got State Senator and Line regular Dee Feldman. All right, the president trails Joe Biden by 15 points, 50 to 39 percent. And maybe the big takeaway is Mr. Sanderoff and reporter Dan Boyd peeled that onion is that while the president's base is strong, moderates break hugely for Mr. Biden, about two to one. And Dan, I got to ask you. Does the president's strategy here need to change if he wants to win New Mexico? And if, if, if he does have to change, how?
3: I think it's hard to answer that question just because mm-hmm. you know, the polls have shown that it, they don't make any sense, right? I mean, you look at the gap between Biden and, and uh, Trump in New Mexico, and then you look at how close the race is between Lujan and Ronchetti. Um, it's just, it's just an interesting, I mean, and the, and and the the reason I bring that up is Ron Kennedy's made no bones about tying himself to the Trump train and Lujan's made no bones about tying himself to the progressive agenda. And yet here you have two local folks that are in a much closer battle than the race seems to be for the president. Look, I think that at the end of the day, um, you know, we know the way the state breaks down. You know, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, Albuquerque, Santa Fe is a very progressive, liberal leaning part of the state. Uh, not, there's not enough votes outside of Albuquerque. But, but uh,
0: let me ask you a question. You know, uh, Trump's at 39, Ronchetti's at 40 percent. They're not that different. Is uh, this a? Tr-
3: they're not that different. But look at where look at where Biden is and where uh, Lujan is. Uh, I mean, there's not that many points separating them. And I think that you're going to find out that's a that, five point spread there. Yeah, I, I, I think that's that's I mean, the margin of error is usually three. So okay. to find that we're even within, you know, the striking distance of the margin of error in a state that Democrats hugely outweigh Republicans in voter registration. Gotcha. I think it's a good shot for Republicans. Now, the problem is, is what can Republicans do to capitalize on it? Right. You mm-hmm. have the legislature. You know, New Mexico is a unique state. Right. In big states, california new york you really look for your your coattails from the top down right right you for your governor u.s senator candidate president in new mexico that outside of when the governor runs it really seems to be a bottom-up approach right i mean you either have to have really strong legislative races that are going to get people out to vote which right. then filter up the ballot then mm-hmm. you do going down the ballot and so um you know we know the house and the senate are both making a push on both sides uh, to capture the House and the Senate, you know that the Republicans think they have a chance to pick up two or three seats in the legislature down south. Um, you have a hotly contested CD two seat. So uh, my answer on the on the on the Biden Trump deal, I don't think Trump is as bad off as people think. When you start okay. in his stance on oil and gas, I don't think there's anything President Trump can do to win over independents and liberals of Albuquerque Santa Fe area.
0: There you go. Dee, Dee, let me ask you this. Um, The Hispanic vote, Gary Johnson did quite well, as we all remember in 2016. Uh, But interestingly, Mr. Biden is doing well with Hispanics, certainly. But is there something we need to be aware of with the Hispanic vote when it comes to Joe Biden?
4: Well, um, Joe Biden is, is leading Trump in this category by two to one. Mm -hmm. Um, That's that's pretty heavy, heavy, heavy odds there. Um, And um, I think, you know, on these polls, particularly the uh, the one of Biden and Trump versus the congressional polls, you really have to look at the nature of the poll itself. The size of the sample for the presidential uh, poll was larger than it was for the congressional polls. Uh, That makes a difference. Um, and, um, one of the things that, um, really, uh, two, two things actually that really are different this time in the poll is the small number of undecideds. Mm -hmm. Um, things are pretty fixed in place already. I believe there's a seven, seven percent undecided in that presidential race, right? That's much smaller than the usual, which is usually about 13 to 15, um, and in other races, it is equally true. Uh, the other thing that I found different about this poll was that instead of the Republican, Independent, and um, uh, Democratic categories, which Sandroff usually uses, this time uh, it's moderate, liberal, and conservative. This yes. is new. Yes. This is new. And, um, I was interested in the fact that he did that this time, um, which may sort of, um, uh, indicate a shift in, in the party, uh, party loyalties. There are some things about it that are very fixed. Like, you know, we saw that more Hispanics, uh, favor the Democrats, more, um, uh, more people in the northwest part of the state favor the Republicans. The east side is solidly Republican, mm-hmm. and the Rio Grande Corridor is Democrat. Right. Uh, but this this whole thing um, about uh, moderates, liberals, and conservatives uh, may be um, a shift in how we're looking at uh, the voting populace. And, mm-hmm. and keep in mind... That these are likely voters right. that were polled. In other yep. words, they voted in either the uh, 2016 or the 2018 uh, elections, or both. This does not um, it does not poll frequent voters who vote in primaries, uh, and it does not poll newly registered or new, new voters. That's so, that bit
0: right there. That's interesting to me. The new voters not being polled, uh-huh. and you got to wonder, Kathy, Miguel. go, sorry, Didia kind of cut you there. I I'm just running a little short on time. Uh, Kathy, talk about that, you know, the influence of young voters, new voters, all that, and, and what it means for these numbers. Are they going to change anything here? What's, what's your guess?
5: You know, I think that there are a lot of new voter initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, saw something recently that a Rio Rancho team from a high school is soliciting um, students from all across the state uh, to who are gonna be 18 at the time of the election, or talking to uh, voters who may not be 18 at the time of this election, but looking towards future elections when they will be 18. So I think young people are getting motivated to get out there and vote, and that's really encouraging to me. And I think that they can make a big shift in what happens um, from um, my vantage and what I'm hearing from young people is that they are not happy with with this binary system. Uh, They don't like the candidates, Uh, but I do like hearing that they are still going to participate in the process and that's what we're encouraging young first time voters to do is to get out there and learn about the process and especially learn about what's happening in your local governments you know, what's happening uh, with those initiatives that are going to affect you immediately. And and you're going to see the people uh, every day that that you're voting for, that you're going to see them more often. Mm -hmm. So I do think that young voters are going to have a significant role to play and that we need to be uh, focusing on getting them out to vote. Voter registration day, September 22nd, is something that Mm -hmm. uh, these young people are saying, you know, we're going to get our first-time voters out there to get involved in, in, in this electoral process. So I'm, I'm excited about it.
0: Kathy, real quick, I'll stay with you on this. We just got a couple of minutes left in this segment. What do you make of the CD2 race being uh, too close to call, in quotes? Sochild uh, Torres is doing a lot of TV. Yvette Harrell is doing her thing. It, it's too close. To, are you surprised by that?
5: I am not surprised by it. I think, you know, one of the things that, that we don't talk about is that there's a big race issue here is that, you know, who are, um, you know, Republicans likely to vote for, um, it it looks like it's sort of split along racial lines that Hispanics are more likely to vote for Torres Small and and, uh, white voters are more likely to vote for um, Yvette Harrell. So I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, it has been um, pretty predictable that it was gonna be really close.
0: Didi, would you agree with that? Predictable? I mean, Sochi Ochoa has won by two points last time around. Yes, I think it's
4: very predictable. This Mm -hmm. has been a Republican seat. Um, uh, Sochi won uh, only by two points, as you say. A little
0: bit bit less, actually, now that I think about Mm -hmm.
4: it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that I find very funny about that race is I've been following the ads for for uh, both of these women. And it's interesting that, you know, all the congressional candidates are women, right. uh, which is which is a first. Um, but the some of the themes uh, that are being used uh, in that race are also being used by Ron Ketty uh, yeah. in his race. He will work with anyone. Uh, so will Yvette uh, Torres, uh, I mean, so will uh, Sochi Small. Mm-hmm. And then they're being criticized. She's being criticized for that. Um, but he's using the same same theme. And I think it's appealing to the middle.
0: Mm-hmm. Dan, real quick, let me ask you, you touched on Ron Ketty there a little bit and you're you're open. But more specifically, what does he have to do to close the gap here? I mean, is it the debate issue? I mean, Ben Ray's agreed to two debates only. How does he get around this being a challenger?
3: <clears throat> Yeah, he, so he's got to. I mean, first thing he's got to do, whatever challenge has to do, is raise a ton of money. I mm-hmm. mean, that's that's step number one. I mean, there's no lack of money. Ben Ray has proven that he can raise money. Being, uh, you know, he was charged of raising money under Nancy Pelosi in the House and did a phenomenal job when they took back the the House. What he's got to do is is if you are not. If you don't have the money, he's got to figure out a way to get earned media. And he's got to figure out a way to get Ben Ray to, you know, produce Ben Ray as something other than, you know, a a legacy politician. You know, he's got to find a way to change the armor that that Ben Ray is. You know, and you saw that, right? There was an ad that came out early about, you know, prior to going to Congress that that uh, Congressman Lujan was a blackjack dealer. Mm -hmm. Um, So so you he's really got to draw a distinction i think it's going to be interesting um it's it's going to be a neat roll of the dice to see if ben ray is correct in avoiding the debates uh more than the two debates with um with mark ronchetti the question is what can mark ronchetti do about it everything Mm. in politics is irrelevant unless you have the money to get out and tell the people why it's relevant and Mm. unless ronchetti can get that money poured in here to help him you know hammer ben ray it's it it, it may wind up making the race a little closer, mm-hmm. but if people don't start pointing up the cash and letting him get a consistent drumbeat message out there, it, it it's hopeless.
0: Good call there. Right of time on that one. Our land is next. We're back after that to debate debates.
2: All right. We'll be back to the line here in just a minute. It is the second Friday of the month, though, and that means it's time for our land which is our environmental reporting segment that airs each and every month with correspondent Laura Paskus. Still not able to get out and about as much as we would like to because of COVID-19, but it's not stopping us from bringing you important stories and important information. And this month, we are talking about the management of some key rivers in the area, the Colorado River up in the northwest corner of the state, as well as, of course, the Rio Grande And as is often the case, we wanted to um, find out how much input tribes along those rivers have in terms of how those rivers are managed, uh, the water rights, uh, conservation, all of those efforts. So we talked to two very important people here this week about that, and specifically the 10 Tribes Partnership, which is a collaborative effort from some of the Pueblos and tribes along the Rio Grande and Colorado River as they look to make their voice a little louder and stronger on these issues of how we care for one of our most important natural resources. Here now, Laura Paskus and Arland.
0: In the Western U.S., states carved up river water between themselves using compacts long before tribes had a say in how rivers like the Colorado or the Rio Grande will be managed. Even though tribes hold the oldest and most senior water rights on those rivers, they still don't always have a seat at the table today. That's starting to change with efforts like the Ten Tribes Partnership on the Colorado River. In this episode of Our Land, correspondent Laura Paskus checks in on what it means for tribes to truly have a say in western water issues.
6: So Daryl B Hill, thanks for joining me. The work that you do as part of the Ten Tribes Partnership and also the Water and Tribes Initiative is focused on making sure that tribes are part of developing the next guidelines for the Colorado River. Were tribes not a part of those original negotiation negotiations in the past?
7: Uh, yeah. Good morning, Laura. Yeah. They, no, they weren't, and. Uh... That's why it becomes even more important you know, that we start to, to create the foundation of you know, why it's important for tribes to, to be able to participate or to make the choice to, to be able to, to, to participate, be able to build a capacity to be able to do that. And there's a lot of different reasons on, on why you know, it's important. The Ten Tribes partner, Partnership of the Colorado River alone, has close to 2.9 million acre feet of water rights in the Colorado River Basin. And those 10 tribes are on the main stem or its tributaries. And the reason that's important is because that's about 20 20 to 25 percent of the volume of the Colorado River. And starting in in 2007, when the operating guidelines were developed for the Colorado River, you know, there wasn't tribal engagement, there wasn't tribal involvement in that process at all. And and so, uh, you know, move forward, you know, with the 2009 Basin Study of the Colorado River Basin Supply Demand Study. this It was a partnership, it was created out of a partnership with the uh, seven basin states and the federal government through Bureau of Reclamation. And again, knowing all those facts in terms of the, you know, the amount of volumes of tribal water and, and, and the fact that, you know, some of it had still had been, a lot of it had been undeveloped in that particular study in, that started in 2009. Tribes were not invited to participate in that particular conversation either. And so, uh, but out of that, you know, it really was a, an awakening for tribes in the partnership.
6: And there's so many challenges in the Colorado River Basin right now. Um, you know, climate change alone is, is a huge problem. I'm wondering what opportunities tribes bring to the conversation.
7: Well, again, you know, it goes back to that, you know, thousands of years of sustainable living from what, what, what I was taught, you know, from my, 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 my grandparents and, and Hamas and Zia in particular, you know, it is. How we fit into our reliance and and our our gratitude, you know, for life and how we fit into it and our our reverence for all living creatures. And so I think when when we're we're moving forward with this whole conversation, you know, those thousands of years of sustainable living and what we learn from it really ignites the broader conversation of who we are as human beings. And you know, and collectively, who you know, how we want to live together, and, and and how we want to be together, and what how we see ourselves fitting into the world, and and I think you know, those are great conversations to be had right now.
6: The way that the Colorado River Basin is is managed is there's the compact, and then there's like essentially these amendments and changes and guidelines. Is the compact itself set in stone?
7: I, you know, I don't think so. It's a, it's a law. And, you know, I got in, when I got involved with this process 10 years ago, it was funny because I was like, so we have all these problems in the basin and 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 why don't we just change the law of the river? And, you know, I, I could have been, you know, <laughs> strung up for, for probably saying that, you know, and I still say that today.
6: Well, thank you so much, Daryl V. Hill, for joining me today. I appreciate
7: it. Oh, you're welcome. Representative
6: Lente, welcome.
8: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
6: So I spoke with Daryl Hill about the Colorado River and the need to include the Basin's 29 tribes when developing the guidelines for the river, for the next guidelines for the river. And I'm curious, when it comes to the Rio Grande Compact, how are Pueblo water rights incorporated and what input did the Pueblos have during the early part of the 20th century when that compact was being negotiated?
8: You know, back in, in the early 20th century, you got to m- m- mind yourself is that many of the Pueblos uh, in the real middle Rio Grande Valley or just in the Rio Grande Valley completely, um, they, they didn't have much of a political clout. Or, or much of a clout at all in regards to being able to assert any type of rights in regards to uh, a water right. And so many of them, uh, in, in, in my mind and, and, and from what I've understood, is that many of them did not understand the notion of being able to own or take claim to uh, own something like water. And, and so for them to say, you know, we're going to claim X amount of acre feet or X amount of water for, for our purposes now and into the future, I think for them was was really foreign, especially considering the language barriers related to my, my Pueblo, for instance, from Tiwa to English, whether it's spoken or written. And so back then, you know, taking into consideration that much, I mean, we're, we're only talking about a century ago, but at the same time, I think about, about 10 years ago and how much things have changed. And so when, when you think about that, I, I would imagine that that their claim in terms of, of their participation to uh, the compact might have been uh, rather limited.
6: So you yourself are an irrigator, a water rights expert, a legislator. Um, and I'm curious of what you think, if tribes were brought in early and if they were treated like the sovereign nations that they are, how facing some of our these really big challenges that we face in New Mexico? how things could look different in a decade or a century.
8: Well, I mean, history has proven itself that the Pueblos have been in the middle Rio Grande Valley in New Mexico for centuries. And they have been able to play a part in the resilience of of how they have lived their lives as agriculturalists, as folks that have taken care of the land, the land has taken care of them. And so if they can lend themselves into what, for for instance, if they can lend themselves to allowing someone like like me, not to say I want to be a part of that right now, but if they allow someone like me or, or or my counterparts in any one of the villages to be a part of that discussion, and that part of that discussion can then be someone like a pueblo person from a Cochiti pueblo, Santo Domingo pueblo, wherever, saying, well, my grandfather or my grandmother or my forefathers talked about this being the way things had been done in the past and if we can lend ourselves to learn from those past practices i think that could be a a great start that could be a great collaboration message a message between the two uh, parties for instance or the many parties but as we move forward i mean it seems to me that to be able to be a part of the process because not only do we have that historical identity and place here in the middle of Grande grand valley but also now with that prior paramount water rights with those senior water rights that are associated with the tribes we cannot have people negotiating and using those senior water rights as bargaining chips that they don't even own that the tribes have and have to protect
6: well representative thank you so much for joining us
8: thank you we appreciate it
2: Back to the line now, and back to elections. It has been a wild and woolly political season already in terms of one of the key things around campaigns, and that is debates. There's been a lot of back and forth between candidates, including in the race for U.S. Senate, about who will debate when and where, and who will call the other one out for not debating. We're seeing that big time in that Senate race, as I mentioned Uh, Right now, there are two debates planned, uh, televised debates planned, one of them here on New Mexico PBS. That will be on Sunday, October 18th at 6 p.m. The other debate is on KOAT uh, in combination with the Albuquerque Journal. But it got us to thinking about a lot of things, one of the key questions being how important are debates really for helping voters make up their minds in the election Um, Obviously, the candidates come from a place a lot of times where uh, they don't see it as that important of an opportunity to get out in front of the voters to get their messages heard. Of course, you have social media, mailers, lots of other ways that you can accomplish that. But uh, we wanted to dive into that conversation and see what this is as an election issue in and of itself. Here now, Gene Grant and the line. (music)
0: staple of the campaign season, debates are critical to this election. While presidential candidates are debating more than ever in the primaries, and of three debates set yet again this fall, debates are a rarity in high-profile local races. Now, here at NMPBS, we've locked down one of the two Senate debates. Watch it October 18th at 6 p.m. But with few rallies and even fewer chances to meet the candidates if we're being safe and socially distant, voters are left to do it on their own comparisons. We're hoping to get a congressional debate or a candidate conversation on the calendar here at the station. But the question we always ask is, are they helpful or just a parade of talking points, tired talking points at that? Now, Catherine, let me start with you on that question. What's the best way to go with these debates? How should we consider them?
5: Um, I think that they are really important. Mm -hmm. Uh, We get an opportunity to see how people respond under pressure. Uh, We get to see them up close. And I hope that if we have really good moderators who are asking really good questions um, and questions that voters are interested in Mm -hmm. hearing the answers to, that the debates will give us an opportunity to learn more about individual candidates. I don't think that in this particular race, because people have pretty much decided already who they're going to vote for, that um, they are really going to sway voters. But um, I think that we we should know who mm-hmm. our candidates are and who we are electing and, and get more of an up-close, in-depth mm-hmm. um, Opportunity to to learn more. Maybe what we need to do is look at how we do the debates and how uh-huh. what kind of questions we're asking right. uh, for those debates. So you know, if we give them softball questions so they can just do their talking
0: points, um, then have, have you? Let me let me, bu- let me bust in here. Have you ever changed your mind about somebody by watching a debate? Has that ever flipped you on a candidate? Never. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. Let me go to Didi on the same question. I, you know. What are we doing with these debates? Essentially, I mean, you've been down this road a few times in your career as well. What are we supposed to take from these debates?
4: Well, the the debates are the only only time that a candidate has guaranteed audience without paying for it. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, so ordinary people can can look. Um, at them unfiltered by their, their advertising messages. Um, however, the way campaigns are now is um, candidates are taught that their campaign message has to be consistent with their debate message. And so I, there, that's where you get, you know, the canned kind of responses. You know, I tuned into the Yvette Harrell, uh, Claire Chase rate uh, debate during the primary, and I was expecting a real fight, Mm -hmm. uh, some real good entertainment, and I walked away uh, rather bored. Uh, So um, I agree, the debates have to be done in a lively fashion. I'm a fan of candidates asking one another questions um, and having, uh, having as much dialogue as possible. Uh, utilizing a town hall format. We can't do that now. So we're kind of stuck with uh, with the traditional the traditional debate format, which I think is unfortunate.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Dan, interestingly, uh, <laughs> KOB 4 is having their debate on October 5th, and Ben Ray has refused uh, at this point to participate. And so what they're going to do is they're going to have, of course, uh, Bob Walsh, who's the libertarian candidate, and Mark Ronchetti and just leave an empty seat for better Luhan. Lujan. I, I just, what's your sense of the debate season as it's going along here? Is this serving the public? Are we better off as voters by having a, a candidate not show up for debates? What? Wh- how should we take that?
3: I, I don't think you're ever served by the candidate not showing up to the debate. I mean, I think <laughs> if the forums are put on, I mean, you ought to be there. The problem with the forums is, is that, you know, Th- these forums spend way too much time asking about what's your favorite book. And, you know, if you could meet your most famous person, who what would you say to them today? And, you know, and, you know, they ask these kinds of questions instead of getting right to the heart of the matter and saying, you know, look, Mark oh. Ronchetti, you said this, why have you changed or Ben Ray Lujan, you voted for this? Why have you changed? Right. And, you know, I think that that's, that's why I'm with DD. I, I, I'd, ra- I think it's more, you know, the Lincoln-Douglas debates were famous for a reason, right? I mean, these guys traveled around the country, set up on courthouse steps, and had discussions for hours upon hours upon hours among themselves. And and I think if we, you know, if we had these forums that were more geared towards, you know, look, I don't care. If Mark Ronchetti wants to scream and holler at Ben Ray Lujan, that's just going to show you who he is. Or Ben Ray Lujan, whatever the, the deal is. I think these, um, you know, if you watch – from the presidential debates down, right? Obviously the higher up you go, the more seasoned they get. I mean, how many times have we watched the presidential debates, whether it's in the primaries and they say, tell us your position on tax reform and the answer is thanks for the question. I want to tell you what DD Feldman did (laughs) and you're like, You know, no one answers the questions, and so I think it's far better to just say, we're going to have a debate, here's how it's going to go, you're going to have nine minutes between you guys, and we're going to have a commercial break, and you're, you know, kind of like the WWE, we're going to start with Mark Ronchetti, Mark, you go, and you guys duke it out for the next nine minutes, we're going to ring a bell and go to commercial and let you go back. I think you'll find more out about their personalities and what they stand for and what the issues are than you will having these moderators that come up with these highly intellectual questions that they mm-hmm. never answer anyway. Mm-hmm. And they just pivot and try to get their talking points out. I have to agree with you.
0: If it's supposed to be a stress test, as Kathy McGill sort of was alluding to, it doesn't really come across in most debates because of that dynamic you're mentioning. Dee, Dee I, got, I got a question for you. This is maybe something for us, us a little bit older I've always felt like we've put so much into that old Kennedy-Nixon debate, that first TV debate, that everyone likes to lean on and say, look, oh my gosh, Nixon got crushed and Kennedy did all this and that. Are we putting too much into the visual, into the TV side of debating versus the meat of what people are actually saying?
4: Well, I think, I, I, I think we're always putting too much into the visual entertainment aspect of it uh, mm-hmm. rather than to the substance. But um, I do think that um, people judge character, right. uh, sometimes by appearance, sometimes by actions. And debates did make more of a difference in the past, though, than they are now. Um, I do think that sometimes at the margins, they can be influential. For example, uh, Obama, when he first debated in, I think it was uh, 2012, mm-hmm. uh, did a terrible job and lost some support. But then that spurred him yeah. to uh, improve in the next two debates. Uh, so, But when there's only one debate that everybody focuses on, uh it's it's much more high stakes
0: that's a good point we have to throw i'm going to move on here but we have to throw in as well the amount of people mailing in vote early voting you know debates are later down the cycle does it really matter as much as they used to we'll find out this group will be back to take a whack at one final issue voting in this critical election we'll be back in just a few minutes
2: All right, we've been talking a lot on the show, and a reminder again now that the U.S. census count is going on. There's not a lot of time left We encourage you. If you haven't gone online, it doesn't take you very long at all, less than five minutes, but the state needs you to make sure you are counted and those in your household. So we encourage you to go do that today. One of the key reasons why that is so important is that information will be used Uh, when it's time to redraw our legislative district boundaries. Uh, The redistricting process happens every 10 years after the census, and we've done a lot of reporting about how New Mexico's history in terms of how and why we redraw those boundaries as we do is not a great one. There are lots of ways for candidates uh, who are in office when it's time to redistrict to shape their district to make sure or try to ensure that their seat is safe uh, during re-election to carve out neighborhoods based on political affiliations and gerrymander and all of those games that are played. And there are a lot of folks out there interested in making sure that is not how we do it again this year after the census is counted. Uh, Correspondent Gwennett Dolan has done a lot of research and reporting on this. She helped us out again this week by sitting down to find out about a new citizens task force that is being set up that will hopefully help ensure that we have a successful and a fair redistricting process in New Mexico.
9: Rob Black and Lily Irvin-Vitella, thank you so much for being with us today. Lily, New Mexico First is recruiting folks for a redistricting task force. What is
1: the point of this task force? What is it gonna do? We're bringing together 21 to 25 people from across New Mexico to pull together recommendations and suggested rules for our state legislators in the redistricting process. So there's been efforts before to have community engagement and community conversations, but the connection between what community is saying and the redistricting results aren't always so clear, and so we believe that with greater rules of engagement, a shared sense of accountability from a cross-partisan group that will be better able to understand and reflect the voices of communities in the redistricting process.
9: I think I caught just a little bit of an understatement there. <laughs> you, you just wrote a policy brief that is soon to be published um, about
1: redistricting. Tell me just the overview of what you found so basically what we did is we we write policy briefs in a way that are intended to be rigorous yet super accessible to folks so for folks who haven't had an opportunity to think much about redistricting and how that works there's a bit of history connecting it kind of to our history in in new mexico and in the country around efforts to have open democratic inclusive elections so that context setting and then really what we dive into are things that work in terms of civic engagement and genuine, deeply authentic civic engagement rather than the appearance of. So um, our, we don't have a particular strategy in mind that we'd like the task force to adhere to. We really are very much have faith and belief and confidence of a lot of really smart people to bring those ideas forward and for good ideas, um, well-facilitated to bubble to the top as recommendations but where we do have a real commitment in terms of outcome is around process. And ultimately this task force is responsible for giving a roadmap to legislators to consider for citizens to be able to decide who our voters or who our elected people are rather than our electeds deciding who their voters are. So we want more open, more competitive um, campaigns.
9: Rob, you're on the board at New Mexico First, you're helping to organize um, this process uh you know it has been brutal for the pandemic has been brutal for families for individuals for businesses especially why do you think members of the business community should pay attention to redistricting now
10: well that's a great question and and i think it's something where understanding the consequences of uh bad redistricting are really important and and consequent, there's many of those many consequences to it. Um, from the business community perspective, you, we want good, thoughtful governance. Um, that means uh, the more when you have competitive districts where people have to debate their ideas, and those ideas are, and and the and the race can go either way because it's really going to be based on those competitive ideas. That creates better governance. It creates better government. Um, when you have the ability for an elected official to pick their own voters and they create safe districts, so a, a district where it's overwhelmingly Republican or overwhelmingly Democrat, the the discussion tends to get extreme on either side. And so they don't have to cross over for other party votes. They're really going to go try to just grab their own parties, which causes uh, really extreme positions uh, to, to resurface in those discussions and those elections, and tend to be more extreme candidates that get elected. We would like to see again that that the requirement or the a situation where those races are competitive, the ideas are competitive, so that uh, the governance is more effective in the end.
9: So you know, business people are just one of among a large group of people that you think should be involved, Lily who are you looking for to serve on this task force? Should people have some experience? Should they be experts?
1: So we're looking actually for a whole range of perspectives. We really, ultimately we want our task force to look like New Mexico. We want it to look like New Mexico in terms of race ethnicity culture coming from different language traditions coming from different political ideologies coming from different faith traditions or not a faith tradition or not a political party right we want folks so we have folks who have tossed their hat in the ring who are PhDs or JDs so they're they have some expertise on these issues in terms of the technicalities but we also really value and respect the expertise of people in community and everybody in a democracy has a stake in this and so while we are impressed and inspired by people's um, sweat equity that has gone into it, we know that there are a lot of ways to bring that kind of, to bring value to the conversation. So what you'll see if we are successful in our efforts, and I have every reason to believe that we will be, is uh, very well balanced in terms of political ideology, very well balanced in terms of geography, and very well balanced in terms of demographics, including a range of kinds of education expertise, both from lived experiences and also from that being somebody's research priority.
9: And so Rob, you're representing the business industry, one of the hats you wear, but you also have some experience with redistricting and uh, democracy promotion in your past.
10: I do. I've I've, uh, had the privilege of working uh, overseas doing democracy development work in, in South Africa during the transition and Uh, in Cambodia and and other countries. Uh, But more recently was involved when I was at the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce in efforts at statewide reform in California and where we were looking to look at how did we do redistricting in California? How did we, and and how could we improve it in a way that really created more of a community voice uh, that made the discussions of how we structured those districts more fair and transparent Uh, And move those away from really partisan discussions and into nonpartisan or uh, really nonpartisan discussions, because they were looking at, you you know, we looked at using retired judges, uh, civilians who aren't um, affiliated with elected officials uh, to really help create communities of interest so that you're not splitting up underserved communities who have historically been damaged in these fights and these uh, well, you know, gerrymandered districts, because their power is diluted. And when that happens, you, loo- you lose a voice in the community. That's really, really important.
9: You know, in New Mexico, the legislature does pretty much this whole thing. Um, you know, they get the census results, and then they essentially go behind a curtain and come out a little while later with a plan. <laughs> it's a little more complicated than that, but not much. And California ended up deciding to do it in a really different way. Um, what did they decide?
10: They, they decided to, again, go to a, a nonpartisan approach where uh, I believe it's a panel of judge, uh, retired judges and maybe even existing judges. I can't remember. It's been, it's been a decade since we went through this reform there uh, to help set the criteria for how they would first draw the lines and then put forward maps for review and approval. So it was really, again, done uh, in a, a nonpartisan way, what it was designed to keep communities with a set of criteria to base those decisions on, but it was designed to keep communities of interest uh, aligned um, to ensure that those districts were balanced as much as possible as far as the, the representation so that you did have good discussions. It wasn't uh, the, the idea of whose party you were with wasn't part of the criteria to determine where the lines were drawn. And they also didn't restrict it to, well, the current representative lives here, so we need to make sure they get to stay there. Because that's not in the best interest of the district. That's in the best interest of that elected official, but that's not what democracy is about. Uh, elected officials are there to serve the people. So we need to make sure that the people get have a fair representation within their district. When they're electing their leaders,
9: and that's an interesting little tidbit you just brought up, because um, you know in New Mexico as it is now, they are allowed to consider where the existing lawmaker lives as a factor in drawing the district. So, Lily, is this the kind of thing that might come out of the redistricting tax task task force—a recommendation to, for example,
1: change that? It might. I think one of the things that we're being guided by is the best practices across the country, right? So, But we also always want something to make sense for New Mexico. So uh, the, um, NCSL has done a really good job of laying out, here are some best practices, here are some emergency, uh, uh, emerging practices, and um, explicitly this issue around how to deal with incumbency has come up. And the suggestion nationally, the trend nationally, is away from protecting incumbents for exactly the reasons that Rob suggested. So that question will certainly be raised. You know, will there be a recommendation or a rule around what to do about incumbents? Will we suggest that it's okay to protect incumbents? Or will we suggest that it's more important that we take other factors into consideration and are either neutral to that, or we're actively um, putting that aside and saying, we don't want to protect incumbents. Um, and that has a lot to do with Rob's point, which I think is a sound one, is what's what's going to lead to the fairest, most open, most competitive elections so that way people have who are running for office have a vested interest in making sure that they're building relationships with all of their constituents rather than just the folks who are most likely to vote for them.
9: The, the National Conference of State Legislatures, which is sort of a research body that study these things, you just referenced them, Lily, and they did a report specifically looking at New Mexico. We talked about it uh, last year, um, comparing New Mexico to other states and how we do the re- redistricting process. One of the things that it showed was that there are comparatively fewer rules about the way we have to do it here. I thought their report was very clear. I wrote a 25 page report on redistricting myself last year. Um, And I'm just the last one in a long line of people who've done reporting on the pretty dysfunctional, uh, I don't think I'm stretching it to say, pretty dysfunctional way that we do this here. What makes you think that this task force is gonna accomplish something that no one else has accomplished before?
1: I'm eternally optimistic. So I'll just take take what I say with the grain, but I am somebody who very much believes that democracy works, especially when it's done well. And so the fact that we are bringing together people of a lot of different diverse perspectives and that we are our eye is on the prize, I think that's critical. I think another piece is we're a very interesting um, juncture in time. I think there are issues that the pandemic, has um, kind of ripped the veil back on, and that Black Lives Matter has amplified and brought to the forefront about what happens when we don't have the freest, fairest, most inclusive, most competitive of elections. What happens when the legacy of racism in our voting laws and in our constitution continues to play out and some people's vote matters more than others? Well, what happens is that we have ways that resources are distributed, that decisions are made that don't serve the public interest that are more likely to serve the special interest. And so I think at this point in history, more than any time, at least in the last four decades, there's a real attention to how government functions, how power is wielded. And so I'm a firm believer that there are people who have been Um, marginalized, who are still willing to give some credence to us having a healthy democracy and a social contract in place. But then it is upon all of us to get it right, to, to really design systems of decision making about the distribution of power and resources in ways that really serve community good. And if we fail to do that, Not only will it be really expensive as it was last time around where we spent over $6 million in lawsuits and then ultimately had a judge draw the map, but we will lose so much in our social capital, in our belief and confidence in one another that we can do this thing we call democracy right. Um, And I think that I'm not the only one who sees just how much is on the line. And um, we know that even if our our legislators choose to take none of the recommendations of this task force that people are watching in a way that they are no longer deferring and saying okay well we'll let other folks figure that out like people are watching and, and and they care and they know that redistricting isn't this thing that's so complicated and so over folks head it's something that impacts all of us and i don't think that we can do a process again where we disregard what the community says without there being a price to pay at the polls.
9: Thank you for that. Rob, we only have a few seconds left here, but I wanted to ask you, you've seen how this played out in other places. Um, The California system is very different from the way it happens here in New Mexico now. Um, Will you consider this process a success if there is incremental tiny change that comes out of it
10: well i think any improvement is improvement but uh i would say that um it is is fundamentally unfair given the time we are in and i think it's it's always been unfair but it's as Lily said it's elevated for the powerful to get to pick who gets to be who gets to continue to be powerful it just there's an inherent conflict of interest there and what we need to do is set up an opportunity where the citizenry has that power and gets to help decide how those discussions, how those debates are, are structured. And, and I'm, I, I am also optimistic that folks who, with good hearts and good intent, intentions, um, will realize that, that it is in their best interest to create that power in the people and not try to be, not be seen as hoarding that power to themselves.
9: Rob Black and Lily Irvin-Vitella, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thanks for thank having you. us.
2: This will be an election year unlike any others, It just in terms of how most people actually cast their vote, much like in the primary election. The push is on definitely for absentee voting, And you can right now submit your application for an absentee ballot on the New Mexico Secretary of State's website. And, of course, the reason behind all of that is so that people don't have to venture out to crowded polls on Election Day in the middle of a lingering pandemic of COVID-19. And so we've been talking about it on the show. Uh, There are a lot of things that are being done to try to make sure the process is uh, fair, is... um, trusted and is accurate, and things like drops, where you can drop your absentee ballot off in person. And so the line panel is back for one more time to talk a little bit about some of those concerns and approaches that the state officials are taking, election officials are taking, as we're now less than a couple months away from Election Day. Let's send it back over to Gene Grant and the line table. (music)
0: It's no exaggeration to say that November 2020's election in one of the most pivotal, it will be one of the most pivotal in our country's history, but getting as many New Mexicans to vote as possible and getting them to feel confident about voting safely and securely may be harder than ever during this pandemic year. The New Mexico Department of Health has set voting restrictions for in-person voting. while officials are still encouraging citizens to vote by mail through absentee balloting. Even if it's not founded in fact, Loss of faith in the U.S. Postal Service threatens to overshadow that message. Indeed, polling locations will be allowed to have 25 percent of maximum occupancy or four voters inside at any one time, whichever is greater. Mobile units will be limited to two in voters inside and waiting outside. Polling locations must maintain six feet of distance, of course, with such restrictions. I got to ask, do you think voters who wait until Election Day on November 3rd risk being left out?
4: being left out of what? Uh, They will get to vote. Uh, They will definitely, it's the, they, they must be allowed to vote if they are in line. Mm -hmm. And um, we are hoping that there will be uh, increased absentee voting and increased early voting so the crowds on all counts will be reduced. And um, one thing that the county clerks could do to ease the situation is to use drop boxes. And I notice in Bernalillo County and in Dona Ana County, um, they are uh, beginning to use drop boxes for absentee ballots uh, that can be dropped off there. I think that will increase uh, at least the perception of safety for voters to come uh, and to avoid the post office as mm-hmm. well, if there are any doubts about that. So, um, yeah. I mean, I think that I'm, we're expecting a big turnout and it will, uh, as in the primary, and it will work.
0: Mm-hmm. Dan, what's your sense of the, of the mail-in voting thing? Is this a much to do about nothing? We know where the president's at on this and such. The public has another thought. I mean, you look at what's going on here. We're going to be voting in record numbers by mail this, this cycle.
3: Yeah, I think it depends on what you mean by mail-in voting, right? If you're mm-hmm. talking about absentee voting, I, I don't think anybody's worried about that. Mm-hmm. I think we start talking about ballot harvesting and openly just mailing out ballots to people based on where we think they should be going. I think there's a real problem with that. Um, so I think we have to separate the two. We've been voting absentee and voting early and sending in our, mal- uh, our ballots via mail for a very long time in New Mexico, all with little to no fanfare. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't think that's going to change this election. I think where the the rub comes is, should we be mailing out ballots just willy-nilly uh, to people based on where we think they live, who we think they are, and should we just have should we have organizations going around and uh, uh, harvesting these ballots? When we saw what happened in the past, when former organizations were doing that in New Mexico specifically, uh, and throwing away certain party registrations, not turning ballots in, so I think that the system, the way the system exists today. Um, I think there's plenty of integrity in the system the way it exists today. I think when you try to change that system, that's when folks get a little nervous. Mm -hmm. Fair enough.
0: Kathy, I got another question about social media and Facebook and others. You know, there's a lot of pressure on Facebook to do more to combat misinformation and stuff like that. In your view, how important is that this cycle? I mean, do they need to do more? Is this something that just can't do anything about because it just, you know, we got Russians and everybody else, you know, in in our business doing this? you know, try to mess this up here. How how important is social media to all this?
5: I think social media is, is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we definitely spend a lot of time on social media and all of us love to, um, we love Facebook and we also hate it for uh, the decisions that they make about when we're going to censor, you know, when we're going to uh, try to, to make sure that there's not disinformation and then maybe going too far and saying, well, now you can't have any ads or do anything um, within a week of the election. Um, And and I know that there's some some stipulations about when they will allow ads to continue. But Mm -hmm. Facebook, social media is very important for how a lot of people get their information. Um, What I do know is that it's not necessarily, I think, going to change the way people vote. Um, it, you know, maybe, perhaps, would encourage them not to go vote. Is what some of the 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 literature has said. But I think that um, that we're going to be using social media for all kinds of things to get information. What we hope is that, that community-based organizations like the one that I represent will get out there and do a really good job of educating. We use social media to do that uh, mm-hmm. about how to vote, uh, getting people to vote and trusting the electoral process and you know, just increasing that voter registration and hopefully getting more than 30% of the people um, in New Mexico who are registered to vote to actually go out and do it.
0: You just anticipated my next question to Senator Feldman. You know, we could have a record turnout here, again, taking outside mail-in voting and stuff like that. It's not going to be a ton of foot traffic, but I can imagine scenarios where people are out there at 710, 715, 720. And as you mentioned, by law, you still have to be allowed to vote. But I'm talking about what happens before then, about confidence in voting. Is there, is there any danger in your mind about the confidence people have about voting, the integrity of voting? Is there some doubt that folks might have this, this cycle?
4: Um, I think that that actually those doubts have been fostered on social media in the past by foreign elements and with the idea of depressing the turnout. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very important what Facebook does. I'm disappointed with the half-hearted measure that they took uh, to include only new ads and only a week before the wow. election. That said, I think it's very important uh, that uh, Facebook is continuing that ban after the election and has said that they will not uh, spread rumors of uh, one candidate declaring him or herself the winner. Um, uh, what happens after the election here is just as important as what happens before the election. We don't have an election day, we have a season,
0: right? That's an excellent point. That's a point to finish on. Sorry, Kathy, we're out of time right there. Hey, thanks to our panelists for getting up to their elbows in politics as we enter the final stretches of this campaign season.
2: Nearing the end of the show this week, but for those of you who aren't aware, we uh, have an additional line topic this week. It's something we do every week on Facebook live during our taping of the show which is what we call one more thing. It's an opportunity for the line panelists to throw out something from the news headlines and some thoughts uh, from stories that we just don't have time for in the show. There's never enough time to get to everything that everybody would like to talk about, to say everything that they'd like to say. So this is a great opportunity for us to do that and to get warmed up and ready for the taping. And so I thought we'd throw that in the podcast as well. And then we'll finish things off with the final thoughts on the week from host Gene Grant. And not surprisingly, he's talking about the weather. Hopefully, you all are thawing out after that big dip in the temps earlier in the week. But in typical New Mexico fashion, ready to bounce back into the weekend with a more fall-like feel to it. We hope you get out, enjoy some great weather, get a lot accomplished Take us with you on the road to the gym, wherever you go, and be sure to let other folks know about us and to subscribe wherever they get their podcasts. Until next week, we hope you have a fantastic week ahead. Stay safe and healthy, and we will talk to you next time.
0: here in the studios of the Mexico PBS with our Line Opinion panelists. We're about to record this week's show, but before we do, we'd like to warm up by taking a turn at other issues that are on our mind, Let's start with my man Dan Foley up there in Rio Rancho. How you doing, dude? Good to see you. Good. I got the flannel on on a cold morning. I appreciate that. <laughs> What's your one more thing today?
3: Uh, you know, I just I think it's the I think it's kind of a dual thing. One of them is, is the battling news coming out of the CDC, right? Today we can do this, tomorrow we can't do that, today we can do something different. Mm-hmm. I think couple that with I think it, it's Ohio, there was a footballscoop.com. Uh, had a deal that was done out that said there's uh, as of Sunday there were 1,100 high school football games played across the country, not one positive COVID test mm-hmm. and not one trace, uh, what what the tracing is um, contact tracing right contact tracing from anybody mm-hmm. having COVID or spreading COVID coming from the over 1,100 high school football games played the last three weeks. So wow. I thought that was uh, I thought that was an interesting statistic on the heels of those statistics. Uh, multiple states have moved to say, hey, we're going to talk about starting football at the beginning of October, the end of September. So it's going to be interesting to see how the landscape changes Mm -hmm. uh, as the news changes. It seems that everybody is chomping at the bit. The interesting part is uh, for us college football fans, everybody thinks the NCAA has any desire to get NCAA football going. People got to remember and slow their jets. The NCAA could care less about football. It's all about basketball. Ninety. Their revenue comes from the NCAA basketball tournament. So they're going to do zero to put in jeopardy the NCAA basketball tournament again this year like they did last year. They right. lost 90% of their annual revenue by not having the NCAA tournament last year. So football will get sacrificed in a minute in order to make sure basketball is ready to go on time and play the NCAA tournament. So it's going to be interesting to see how all of this plays out. That's
0: fascinating. I hadn't really thought about that. That's interesting. Plus, people have their you know football, NFL starting on Thursday night, last night, of course. And it's just, and, you know, actually we're live here. It'll be tonight. Sorry. we're so used to a delay, but uh, I think you're right. That's interesting. Basketball is going to be the thing this year. You're right. for college stuff. Diddy Feldman, I'm going to give you a topic, actually. KOB TV and KOAT and others are reporting that Chief Geyer is out as chief of police here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He'll be leaving at the end of the year, but staying on the job to the end of September Uh, You were on the search committee, I believe, when Mayor Keller came into office. What's your sense of this news?
4: Well, I'm kind of surprised. I don't know Chief Geyer, but I do know that he was one of the first hires um, from the Keller administration, and he was popular with the rank and file of the police. He was one of three um, chiefs from Albuquerque who were Uh, who were considered almost as a triumvirate uh, to lead that department. Uh, The other two, I I still remain on the job and probably one of them will be selected as the, at least the interim chief. The whole thing to me is, um, it is, it brings up the idea of uh, the fact that city police chiefs are appointed by the mayor and uh, I believe confirmed by the city council, whereas mm-hmm. sheriffs are elected. And um, the uh, assumption has been that this has made city police departments more efficient than, um, than sheriffs who, um, who, be, who are elected independent of the county commissions. And that has led to problems in the past where, because the county commission cannot direct what sheriffs do. Mm-hmm. So um, the, um, the fact that they're appointed, though, can lead to a revolving door, in some cases, of police chiefs uh, who are blamed for high uh, crime statistics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, re- a revolving door kind of compounds the problem unless there are some real strict guidelines from above. And we used to have those from the DOJ, the Department of Justice and the settlement. But uh, I, I'm I'm not sure that that's really going forward at this point.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a co- open question, isn't it? Um, Kathy McGill, I get your sense of this, of the chief, of course, has had his ups and downs. Most recently during the summer, there was the, George Floyd March, but there was the aftermath downtown where APD sort of got caught unawares that, you know, apparently there was crime going on three blocks away and they couldn't quite respond. What's your sense of how he's handled this summer?
5: Um, I think everybody was unclear about what to do and Mm -hmm. um, they were trying not to do the wrong thing and not to have bad optics and, and their inaction caused um an enviable result um, that wound up getting them more controversy. I think they have the right heart for what they wanted to do, and it just didn't come out the way that it should have.
2: Hmm. And,
5: you know, the chief, you know, perhaps mm-hmm. is taking the heat for following the policies that he was directed to follow.
0: Mm-hmm. Dan, you want to get in on this? I know you Talked about a ball, but do you want? Do you have a sense of what you'd like to say about Chief Geyer? It, it's interesting when you think about what happened just the other night at City Council. You had, you know, people from the administration saying these are unfounded rumors, and of course, the next morning, <laughs> they're not unfounded, are they? And they're not rumors. So, uh-huh. what's your sense yeah, of the situation? I, I,
3: think, I think there's two things. One of them is, you know, I, I always find it interesting when the elected officials fire the people who are hired to implement their policies, right? Whether mm-hmm. it national level state level, local level right you know hey the crime is a problem because of the police chief no the police chief only implements the policies that the city council and the mayor give him to implement and so um, I think it's indicative of a bigger problem that's existing and in, in, in Albuquerque right now in my opinion I think there's been a constant battle uh, between um, uh, city councilor um, Pat Davis and the mayor's office about who really is running the city. And I think they have somewhat competing views on what direction to take the city in. And I think that there's some ancillary fallout from uh, those competing competing views. You know, I think they try to present in public that Pat Davis and Tim Keller uh, are kind of on the same page, but the words I hear from folks that are on the inside that those two are at each other's throats all the time. And there seems to be a competing... Uh, struggle for power between Pat Davis on the city council and Tim Keller as mayor, as mm-hmm. who's gonna move on to the next, you mm-hmm. know, mission. Um, and I think this police chief could be a, could be somewhat of a fallout from that. Right. You know, you got yeah. a, you got a person on the city council who used to be a police officer who's constantly All got right. how the police department should be run.
0: Yeah. I thought about that often. That's, it's a difficulty. Oh, well, we got to throw in the Unyante statue situation too. I mean, someone got shot on the chief's watch. I mean, during a protest, there's lots of things that, lots of layers here. We'll have to wrap this up there. Thanks for joining us. New Mexico in Focus airs Friday nights at seven o'clock and Sunday mornings on New Mexico PBS. Wasn't this a week for weather? Wednesday morning, a whole lot of us woke up to a dusting of snow on the ground and a bitter wind for good measure. By the end of the week, it was like it never happened. Don't you love New Mexico? If anything, we can appreciate those crazy 48 hours for beating down the medio Fire outside Santa Fe. But there's no such luck yet for our friends in California and the other areas experiencing wildfires right now. And the smoke and haze that's found its way to our air testifies. All of this is a reminder of an issue that's critical for younger voters, especially, and that's climate change. Can you blame them? This is the world as they see it and experience it. And summers like this only add to their sense of urgency.